Welcome to Sin Escapism, the podcast by two friends who love to talk about the movies. I'm Kendra. I'm Anthony. Hi, Kendra. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm okay. Oh, good. <laughs> I went to the dentist. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it, it had been a while, so I figured oh. I should go since I have insurance through my work, so it's nice. <laughs> well, I've been sick for like the last two oh. weeks. Boo. Yeah, so I'm stuck at home, but it's good. I'm being very productive, doing some writing, doing some pitching, doing some, yeah, things that I like doing. So it's actually nicer than being at work. <laughs> what are you writing? Um, so I'm doing a couple of articles. I'm doing an article on the, you know, the Prince Charles Cinema in London. Oh, yes, you do. That's where we actually, one of the first times yes, we met. Yes, of course. I saw Clueless, the music, like, sing-along musical there with Robbie, <laughs> one of our first dates. Wow. Well, so I'm yeah. writing an article about them for London there. Oh my gosh. And they're really interesting cinema because actually they've been open since the 60s and they used to be a theater and then there used to be this sort of CD, you know, movie house that showed... Oh, was it like an adult cinema? Yeah, it was. And they showed like films oh. like Caligula and like like those really controversial 70s movies. So it oh, has amazing. a very interesting history. So I'm looking forward to writing about that. So yeah. Very cool. Well, how are you learning about it? Are you like interviewing people who work there or I'm, what I'm, are you doing? I'm going to go and and chat to the people who work there now and to the manager mm-hmm. and stuff and see what they can tell me. There's a lot of stuff online as well to read about it. Um I might go through some newspaper archives and stuff just to see what kind of films they showed. So yeah, it'll be an interesting research project as well. Yeah, well you definitely work in the right place to get newspaper archives. Yes. Mm. <laughs> mm. Mm-hmm. So do you. I saw you've been doing a lot of amazing work online. You keep posting yeah, about Yeah, well, like... so one of my projects, this is like a self-imposed kind of thing. Um, we have this archive at the museum where I work in Bradford called the National Science and Media Museum. And the archive is the, um, the archive, the, it's basically the picture library um, of the old Daily Herald newspaper. Mm, yeah. Um, so it's like, 40 odd years roughly of newsworthy people and events and everything and like all the original photos and the negatives as well so it's this amazing archive um but there's like three million images in there and so obviously like resource wise um we haven't been able to catalog every single picture in there but it's such a, it's such a brilliant resource and a brilliant archive that and it's my favorite archive in the museum so i've been taking it upon myself when i have some you know extra time at work to go down and catalog <laughs> pictures so just to get them online so that people can search for it on the science museum website and know kind of what we have um, and then they come up they can come up and visit us and so i've been working through um, the two vip boxes of Laurence olivier photos and then recently i discovered that there's actually like four whole extra folders of vivian lee pictures that i didn't even know existed and they were in the morgue files the entire time and i was so excited because i've been there for almost a year and i was like oh i know where everything is and then i found these and i was like oh my god new discoveries old nuggets you know so it's really cool that's so exciting especially for you like you've been sitting on this treasure it's amazing i know it's so good i just yeah the reason one of the reasons why i love working at this museum is that the collections are so just 100 percent relevant to my interests yeah so absolutely. it's just like and I love the fact, photography and tv i love the fact that they let you like work on your own stuff 
as well. Yeah, it's one of the perks of my position is that I kind of get to do my own little projects as long as it sort of contributes to basically um, promoting the collections. Yeah, both which in this house definitely and does. Outside as well. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> So this ties in with what we're going to talk about on this episode. Yes, it does. Uh, Tell them. So uh. it's, I mean, it's very, very exciting for both of us, but for you especially, I feel like this episode has really been long coming because we're going to be talking about our favorite couple, Vivian and um, Larry. <laughs> yes, we're talking about Vivian Lee and Lawrence Olivier, real life couple, on screen couple, and basically the two people that I have been obsessed with for so long <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> that's like my wheelhouse you know so I'm so excited to talk about it I mean obsessed um, with like all capitals <laughs> all capitals <laughs> yes definitely like yeah big fat capital letters I was like um, why are you so obsessed with me <laughs> that's what they would say if they saw me they'd be like please security <laughs> No, but the thing is that there's such like a weird dynamic of being a fan and then trying to do scholarship at the same time because I realized that yes, I'm an actual huge, like I'm a classic film fan, but I'm a specifically like a hardcore fan of these two people as a unit, you know? And it's one of those things where it's like, but I want, I, I, I do all these fan activities like you know, I've got the social media and my website, vivandlarry.com, and, and I participate very much in this fan community. But at the same time, like, I really want people to take me seriously. So I, you know, contribute to, like, doing writing. Like, you did a book on Vivian Lee, and... Yeah, yeah just... I was going to say, you're quite successful, so I don't think you have to worry too much. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> and it's just a weird dynamic. I think, too, because, like, well, you probably... I don't know, maybe you've encountered the same sort of feeling as well, having done film studies in grad school also, but there's a kind of thing where I feel like in academia, there's a bit of snobbishness where if you are into something that's really popular, like musicals, for example, or even just classic Hollywood film, or, you know, not French New Wave or like Gilles Deleuze and people <laughs> like that, then then it's kind of looked down upon. Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, it yeah. happened to me when I was actually working on my um, on my master's thesis during my MA. You know, I no. was told by my supervisor, who shall who shall remain nameless, <laughs> that oh my god, you know, working on sort of aging Hollywood actresses is not really, you know, something that has any future in academia. He didn't think it was a good idea at all. He didn't, you know, rate my project very well. So. Yeah. Well, that's just bullshit because I mean there has been scholarship on aging actresses as we know um, and you've done some really good articles uh, after the fact after graduating oh yeah I so. don't regret it at all for a second but you know it's yeah. just what you said is so true that there's there's a lot of snobbishness and sort of I don't know but we yeah, don't care yeah it's kind of silly <laughs> I think yeah we don't care whatever and also that's we've the books. of being of sort of on the fringes of academia because we're not technically academics we're more sort of yeah you know we write for everyone and everyone can read our stuff rather than just we're like of, a popular audience yeah I mean we yeah. obviously do our research and we take it very seriously that we present factual you know documents yeah. but at the same time we don't want it to just be read at sort of conferences or <laughs> <laughs> exactly 
So I mean, I've been, I've presented at conferences as well, so there's nothing wrong with that at all. But no, I think my goal is to reach like as wide an audience as possible. Absolutely. And also with academic publishing, it's a bit. I think it's a bit exploitative because people do a lot of writing and a lot of work for very little or no pay. And I think that's just absolutely ridiculous. Mm, I mean, yeah, with writing altogether, it's so hard, as we both it's know. It's so hard. Boo. To, yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> that's, why we, that's why we have day jobs. Oh, God, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kendra, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about why you love them so much, Vivian and Larry, and what got you into them? And yeah, what's the passion? What's the interest? Yeah, I mean, I ask myself this sometimes as well, like, why am I so obsessed with these people? And it's, it's very like singular, a singular interest, you know, like I'm interested in other classic film couples, like I really like Clark Gable and Carol Lombard, I think they made a good couple. Mm. I really like, I don't know, I guess Ava Gardner and Frank Sinatra or whoever. Um, But (laughs) I'm not like, I'm not obsessed with those people as I am with Larry and Vivian. And I I call them like Larry, Larry and Viv, you know, like, even though, like, I never knew them and they died way before I was born. Well, actually, I was five (laughs) when Laurence Olivier died. So Mm. um, I just revealed my age. So do you think it's more than just what they projected on screen? You're is it? Yeah, I I think so. Because I I got into them. when I first saw Gone with the Wind, which we talked about in our first episode. Yeah. And that's how I discovered Vivian Lee. And through reading about her, her biographies, I, you know, I had heard of Laurence Olivier before, but I don't think I had, I didn't really know who he was or I'd never seen any of his films. Um, and I just said, oh, he, that, I know that name. And I found out they were married. And just the more that I read about them, the more interested I became. And then I started watching some of his films as well um, and just... The more, the more I learn, the more I want to know, which I think is contrary to some other people out there who maybe think they know too much and now don't like them as much as, anymore because they found out that they were like, you know, real people <laughs> instead of just just these like uh, imaginative kind of iconic figures. But the thing is that they were a really iconic couple during their time. They were like the Brangelina um post-divorce, you know, (laughs) if you will, of old Hollywood. They were gorgeous. They were really successful. Um, They were very talented. And they just made a really compelling couple. People loved them. Yeah. Uh, They were together from 1937 to 1960, uh, married for 20 years out of that time, um, and then unfortunately divorced. But they still, I think, hold a lot of people a lot of people's imagination um, or fascination, I guess I should say. And and I'm one of them and I just want to learn more. Um, There are always like new archives coming out that I'm just like, oh my gosh, I just want to know like everything about their story. I'm so fascinated by their dynamic. I just want to know how they ticked. And and I'm, I'm interested in learning about the not so nice things as well as like the the lovey-dovey love letters and things like that. Yeah. It's hard to explain, but... There's just so much out there, isn't there? That it's really easy to get lost in the whole mystery because there's, as you said, so many papers, so many archives, so many places connected with them, both in America and here in the UK. And and it's both the theatre world and the film world. And there's just so much, really. They touched on so many facets of pop culture. Yeah, it's almost inexhaustible. 
it's it really is and and you know i've been collecting on them for well since i was 18 16 years now oh my god <laughs> um <laughs> and i just I keep doing it like I'm I'm thoroughly obsessed and I don't mind admitting that because it's kind of like what it like learning about them and writing about them and and doing social media about them has really kind of it's really changed my life in a way yeah, or it's just true. kind of led me down a certain path so opened so I'm, many different avenues it. for you hasn't it yeah it really has so I mean it brought us together so oh it's true thanks yeah. Vivian Harry <laughs> Thanks, Larry.com. Check it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's so true. <laughs> I know. Well, what do you like about them? I mean, what do you find fascinating? I mean, obviously, it started for me with Vivian. I was really obsessed with Vivian from an early age. As we discussed before, I loved her in Gone with the Wind. And then when I was growing up, I discovered the streetcar named Desire, which I became really obsessed with when I was about, yes. I don't know, 12 or 13. It was a very hard time for me because uh-huh. my dad had just passed away and I was having a really hard mm-hmm. time at school. Um, and then we were moving to London soon after that as well. So it was a really transitional, really difficult time for me. And and I was just so into Streetcar Named Desire. I was like properly obsessed with it. I thought I was Blanche, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you peaked at age 13. <laughs> I really did. I was just so under the spell of the of the, of the film. And then... I read the first book I read about Vivian was the um, Anne Edwards biography, which I know is not your favorite, but um, yeah, I actually really liked it. And I, it, you know, I read that Larry was the director of this stage version of Streetcar, um, mm-hmm. and just reading about the relationship it made me really, really interested in them. And and I started really being interested in Larry as well. And then when we moved to London, obviously living in London was so easy to see all the places connected with them and. And mm-hmm. Larry's still such a huge presence here because, you know, of his artistic contribution to the theatre and everything. So you can really see him everywhere you go. And there are the Olivier Awards for theatre and you can see his statue in, you know, on the South Bank. And mm-hmm. so it's just, he's so alive here in London. And I think you can't really think of Vivian without thinking of Larry as well. So I think that's where the interest kind of overlapped yeah that's the same for me too it's just I, they were just so interesting but maybe we should just give people kind of a rundown about their relationship and who they were yeah, and everything and absolutely. we'll see so so they met um, in 1935 when Vivian was 21 and Lawrence Livia was 37 almost 38 no sorry 28 well, yeah I was <laughs> going to say <laughs> <laughs> 28 um, and at the time Lawrence Livia was kind of a, a an up-and-coming theater matinee idol sort of person. And Vivian Lee had just made her big stage, West End stage debut in a play called The Mask of Virtue Mm. um, in the the West End. And Laurence Olivier had seen her and thought, like, you know, she was so beautiful and he was kind of, like, mesmerized by her. And she had seen him in a play called Theater Royal where he played a sort of John Barrymore character yeah and she you know she supposedly turned to a friend and said that's the man i'm going to marry and her friend said well don't be ridiculous because 
you're both already married? And she said, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to marry him. And then she <laughs> did. So, of course, like, there's this kind of, like, fairy tale kind of story about it. Um, but it's also, Destiny. like, kind of sad when you think that. <laughs> Um, but so they met at um, the Savoy Hotel in the Strand and at the Savoy Grill, which is now a Gordon Ramsay restaurant. Oh, great food, <laughs> great ambiance. I love Gordon Ramsay. You should go have dinner there. <laughs> I was actually there a couple of weeks ago having drinks. It's lovely. Were you? Oh, yeah. it's so posh. It's really nice. I love and it. And there's a portrait of Ava on the wall as well. Yeah, yeah. Which they've is, got a little museum there that you can go up and kind of see like people's registration cards from the 1930s, and it's it's pretty cool. Um, but so yeah, they met in 1935, and Vivian was obviously head over head over heels with Laurence Olivier. Um, they started acting together in films because they were both under contract to a producer called Alexander Corda, who was like the big. Uh, film mogul in the UK. He was kind of like the Louis B. Mayer, except yeah. he was like the only one in the UK who was <laughs> doing it. So he wanted to make them into big stars and he cast them together in a film called Fire Over England, which is an Elizabethan costume swashbuckler drama. Um, and they ended up starting an affair when they were doing this film. Um, and the other thing is that they both had a child from their um, actual spouses yeah and then but they decided that they wanted to you know they were very much in love um and so they decided to divorce their spouses and get together um so they wasn't, got married in sorry so it wasn't tarquin larry's son born while he was um making the film with yeah him. so he was born in 1936 which was when they were filming fire over england yeah. and um yeah that's the thing. I think we can talk about Tarquin in a little bit because someone, um, we're going to do some uh, listener questions at the end, and someone asked about Vivian's daughter and how she felt about Larry as a stepdad. So I guess we can talk about Tarquin yeah, and Vivian, absolutely. the stepmom as well. But so Larry and Vivian, they married in 1940, um, just after Vivian had done Gone with the Wind. Lawrence Olivier did Wuthering Heights. They became like these really famous people in America. They got married in a midnight ceremony in Santa Barbara in August 1940, and then honeymooned on Ronald Coleman's yacht off Catalina Island, and it's extremely romantic. And um, then they came back to England during the war to kind of help out with the war effort, uh, and then got really big in the London theater because Laurence Olivier was very much obsessed with being a, a theater actor, and, and not just any theater actor, but like the best actor and playing these great Shakespearean classical drama dramatic roles and so Vivian went along with that but they still continue to do films um I mean it's so hard to kind of condense their story down into like a two minute little soundbite because there's so much that happened and so much nuance with them but to to just kind of skate through it um they divorced in 1960 and the reason for that mainly although there, i'm sure there were other factors but the the main reason was that um vivian was unfortunately bipolar and so they didn't have like proper treatment back then and Lawrence olivier couldn't cope with that unfortunately but the thing about it is that even though they divorced like they still kept in touch with one another and it's just a really kind of dramatic story there was a lot of love there and a lot of kind of fighting and it's just a big romance in like every kind of way yeah and yeah it's 
that's yeah it's, it's really interesting it is it has this almost like sort of tragic like a greek tragedy because they were so in love and yet in the end they couldn't be together and yeah you know all the stories of ah. vivian like having his pictures on her dressing table until the end and she yeah. never really gave up the ghost of larry which is you know and he obviously cared for her always as mm-hmm. well like i kind of yeah, who, I mean, they... who was it that said that like in the 80s so like 20 years after vivian's death like whenever someone interviewed him and they would mention Vivian, he would, like, you know, tear up and, like, really, you could see he was so moved by her still, and, like... Yeah, Yeah, well, he kind of refused in interviews to talk about her illness and the effect that it had on him and their relationship. He found it really hard to talk about that, and that's really obvious in later interviews. Well, you can imagine Um, why. Yeah, he kind of just, like, glosses over a bit. I think the most in-depth one that he did was obviously the Melvin Bragg interview that got turned into an Emmy Award-winning documentary called Laurence Olivier, A Life from 19... I think it was 1982... Um, and he does talk about Vivian in that, in that documentary. And it's just, it's kind of sad because you could tell that like, there were still a lot of feelings there. Um, I don't think like lust or maybe it was a a little bit of lust, but it wasn't like this big love kind of thing, but just like a really deep sense of caring, you know? And it's just, it was, it's just sad. I mean, their lives were so intertwined with each other for Mm -hmm. so long during such a, like a pivotal moment in both their lives that it's obvious that you know he was she was always going to be a very important person in his life because she was there yeah, oh, yeah. to witness everything from the beginning when they you know before they were even famous and he the whole sort of rise to stardom and him becoming this first you know what would you say as if a king almost of of the theater here in london and Absolutely. They were like a royal yeah. couple, really. Well, they were known as the as theater royalty yeah. in England and around the world too because they were widely traveled. Um they they brought theater to like Australia, um across Europe uh in the 1950s and you know Larry went with the Old Vic company to uh like Germany and Paris just after the war and to America as well. So they really stood for something in in the London art scene. They were like they were an event. You know, the, the pillars, yeah, the pillars of British theater, and they took this culture around the world and became this. Just the, they occupied, as someone said in one documentary, they occupied so much space in the public imagination. Yeah. That so now for people like me who do research about them, it's a real challenge to kind of dig underneath this mythological kind of picture to try and figure out who they really were as people and the ins and outs of their professional and their personal relationship and that's been a journey and and a really interesting one Mm. i mean you you can maybe tell us a little bit about your website as well because that's an incredible archive i love it so much and there's so much there thanks oh yeah so the website is called vivandlarry.com that's viv and larry.com but i don't enunciate very well because i'm american um (laughs) (laughs) uh it's um I started it in 2007 as just kind of a way to share things that I was starting to collect because at the time, um, 
I had been interested in Vivian Lee for about like five years um, and there were a few really good websites around at the time. One was like VivianLee.com, which is run by a lady called Lee Mills. Oh yeah, um, I remember that a, one. That was the first one yeah. I discovered. I loved it as well. Yeah, unfortunately it's not on, It's not updated anymore, but there was another, there was a Polish one, a Gone with the Wind one by... Um, Kasia Sindel, um, our friend from Poland. Oh, I didn't know that. And yeah, it's, that one's not updated either. There were a couple like really good, well-designed websites, um, but they mostly just focused on Vivian. And I was really interested in kind of looking at her relationship with Laurence Olivier. Hmm. Um, and one thing that I've noticed over the years of doing social media and and just interacting within this fan community is that there's a real divide when it comes to opinions of Olivier. Um, especially when it comes to his uh, actions toward Vivian Lee. Um, a lot of Vivian Lee fans, especially female fans, um, kind of tend to see Laurence Olivier as like the bad guy and Vivian Lee is the sad girl, you know? So, like, yeah. because Laurence Olivier was the one who left her that he was some kind of like vi like the villain in the story or that he ruined her life or something like that. And I'm just like, well, you know, nothing is black and white. It's very sad that that happened. But so there were, there were a lot of, um, there's a lot of rumors about them. There is a lot of just preconceived notions about them. And so I just wanted to share with people uh, like articles that I was collecting and pictures that I was collecting. And it's really turned out in the past 11 years um, to become like this giant community that's spread out across the entire world. And I've met some really amazing people, like not only you, but our friend Marissa, who we mentioned in like every episode. <laughs> I met her, <laughs> I met her through the website. Um, I met our friend Mark Mays through the website. Jeremy Kinzer, who we talk to a lot, I met him. Um, a really amazing lady from Australia called Sharoma. I met her. Um, just so many really cool people because Andy of this website well. are shared interests. And who? Andy. And, and oh, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Andy Budgel. I met him as well. Yeah, I um, mean, just so really many amazing cool people. people. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, like, so, I mean, I think there's a sort of when you're involved in fandom you can kind of think like oh or if or some fans are kind of crazy or whatever um but i've met just some which awesome they people are. that I, which they, they completely are well. yeah <laughs> fans are crazy um but i've just met i've met some people yourself included who i consider like my nearest and dearest friends Aww. i'm so grateful for Same. what what's come out of this and this like labor of love you know you're my michelle and... visage to my rupaul oh my god <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> michelle visage miss vanjie miss vanjie <laughs> but what i've noticed as well about especially vivian is that her fans are particularly sort of devoted if not obsessed like there are, you know, obviously yes. every one of the classic movie stars has their own fandom. and But I feel like Vivian is one of the ones that really, like, people are very devoted to her and, like, have very strong opinions, as you said, and are very sort of ter almost territorial about her. Like, everyone mm. thinks that they know more or, like, that Vivian just they belongs to Vivian. them. They own Vivian. Yeah, I don't know why, but Vivian... <laughs> oh, wait, that's me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 
actually, you know, you're laughing, but I feel like you're not like that at all. Like, there are people who have so much less to, like, contribute, but have, like, you know, claim so much more. Like, people are very, very, almost, like, violently, you know, they have very strong opinions about Vivian. So wh- yes, what, why do you think yes. it is that she, in particular, is, like, attracts such sort of high-strung personalities? Um... Well, I I do get territorial about the work that I do about Vivian. I will say that because I've just because I've been doing it for so long and I put in so much time of my life and just like, you know, have put in so much work that I'm I'm very kind of hesitant to give that away even though i have and it's backfired a couple times but we're not gonna go it's different because it's Um, it's your work whether some people are not actually you know working on anything they just sort of sit there and and have lots of opinions about her without actually putting any of the work (laughs) yeah well i think the thing about vivian is that first of all she was in an extremely successful and beloved film which was Gone with the Wind and she played this character Scarlett O'Hara that people are still obsessed with you know 80 years after the film came out um, she just resonates so much with people she's very modern in a way um, even though she died in 1967 so like way before a lot of us were a lot of us younger fans were born um, but also I think there's uh, the whole thing of her being seen as a tragic figure so i think a lot Mm. of people are very protective of her um because they 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 see her as someone who got kind of like the shitty end of the stick you know in in a lot of ways like short changed by life (laughs) short changed by life like she she had a lot of things in her life she lived a very full life so she was a tragic figure but at the same time like I don't know if she would call herself that because it's only in hindsight when we look at the whole scope of things that we say like, oh my gosh, yeah, like she had, you know, she dealt with some really major things. Like, so for example, like she had a couple of miscarriages. Um, She, you know, she ended up being in a mental hospital for a while because of uh, manic depression. Um, So she was committed in that way. Um, She lost the love of her life. She lost the love of her life and she was the one that was left and so she's considered like the sad one and then she died when she was only 53 of tuberculosis. So, I mean, it makes sense that people view her as this very kind of like sad person, but people are very protective of her Um, and I don't quite know how to explain it, but they just are. I suppose it's the same of people with like Marilyn Monroe fans. Yeah. Or uh, Judy other people Garland. who maybe died young. Judy Garland, people who were maybe like a bit misunderstood or just had a tough time of yeah. things. I, yeah, you just, yeah. That makes you sense. Kind of take I those mean, people to heart. Yeah, it makes sense because even what I said before, like when I was younger, it really resonated with me. Her personal story, but also her on screen, you know, the on screen roles that she played were, were often sort of tragic heroines as well Scarlett mm-hmm. was in a way as well but Blanche definitely and Anna Karenina and Mrs. Stone and all those characters were like really deeply troubled people I don't know about you but do you sometimes feel like people conflate the real Vivian with her characters like I'm I'm especially thinking of Blanche and A Streetcar Named Absolutely. Desire because but people sh- are like well you know what well, she wasn't really acting that was her and it's like um Okay. Well, I think you it know? was both. I think de- definitely she shared certain sort of traits with Blanche, but obviously you have to be a very, you know, skilled, talented actress to be able to convey that. Even if you are similar to, mm-hmm. to a character, it doesn't mean that you can 
projected on screen. I mean, <laughs> that's just ridiculous. It's the same with yeah. other actors. I mean, it's the same with Marilyn or like, you know, people always say like, oh, she just played herself. But it's like, you know, it's a ridiculous statement to make, usually made by people who have never acted or like never been before a camera. They wouldn't, you know, it's not that easy. Even if the character mm-hmm. is quite close to you, it doesn't mean that you will be able to play her or portray her. So I think, but also I think Vivian contributed to that because she said, you know, she often said how close she felt to Blanche and she said, oh, I am Blanche the boy. You know, like there are stories of her mm-hmm. saying that. So I think that certainly contributes to her to having this very vulnerable persona. Yeah, well, I think in terms of A Streetcar Named Desire and a lot of other characters, she was much more method in a way than Laurence Olivier is. I mean, they're often compared with each other in terms of like, people say like, oh, Vivian was much, much better on film and Laurence Olivier just was kind of hammy and blah, blah, blah. And yet people think he was like this great actor, like the greatest, you know, actor. Mm. And it's like, well, you have to think of these like two different kinds of styles but I feel like there's so much to unpack with statements like that because Laurence Olivier was classically trained down to his teeth you know like he you know trained with the the um the Birmingham Repertory Company and then at the Old Vic and he was very much into Shakespeare and playing these big classical roles and at the time in the 1920s and 1930s when cinema was really like a a really quite new medium there was um a lot of like prissy attitudes toward film versus theater where yeah. in critical the critical thinkers thought that theater was the real art form and cinema was just a way that people made money and that's certainly how Laurence Olivier felt about things and I think that that's very much a sign of the times like it's not just he was being a snob it was like that's what everybody thought that's how the whole entire like theater acting community thought about films they did films to make money especially in britain i think oh yeah definitely um and he you know he looked down his nose at hollywood and then when he came in 1939 because okay so Laurence olivier had gone to hollywood first in the early 1930s with his first wife jill esmond um under a contract to rko and i think he made two or three films but they weren't you know they weren't classics by any means. They're old, but they're not classic, you know? <laughs> um, and he kind of he failed, really. He failed, yeah. He was a failure in his first try um, in Hollywood. And as any young, you know, like 25-year-old would do, if you have a major failure, you kind of tuck your tail between your legs and say, well, F <laughs> this, and, like, <laughs> go back home, where he, was, where he felt like he was, you know, more appreciated or could maybe, like, develop his... Um, his skills as an artiste a bit more, you know? Um, so it's a, it a big, like, cultural kind of thing and not just, like, him being a snob about stuff. But then he came back in 1939 to do Wuthering Heights, where he was directed by a really amazing director called William Wyler. And William Wyler, who was apparently, like, a tyrant on set, <laughs> but he's the one that convinced Laurence Olivier of the potential of film as an art form. Like he said that, you know, anything you can think of, film can do it if you can just think of a way to do it. And so that's what really got Laurence Olivier's wheels kind of churning. And that resulted in these three amazing Shakespearean films, Henry V, Hamlet, and later Richard III. Mm. Um, and, and it really like instilled an appreciation for filmmaking in him. Um, 
But then you talk about Vivian Lee, who also wanted to be a great classical theater actress, um, especially once she came under the wing, per se, of Laurence Olivier, because she looked up to him as like a mentor and as someone who was really going places in his career. And she wanted to, you know, I think she saw the potential in him and she wanted to be like on his level, as it were. And so she put her sort of put her her faith in him to, as a leader and someone who could like coach her into being a great theatrical actress. And so she looked down on films as well for quite a while. Um, yeah. And it's really interesting to kind of look at not just like theater versus film, but also British film versus Hollywood film and critical responses to these things. So like, Britain really struggled, especially during the war years, to kind of cement a national cinema, whereas Hollywood was seen as like the thriving, you know, yeah. the, the place to be and the the country that could, you know, make all of these great things happen in front of the camera and the cinematic output that went all around the world. And Britain was really struggling. And, you know, I've read an article that Vivian actually wrote in 1947 um, when she was filming Anna Karenina for Alex Korda in England. And she said, you know, uh, it, it's about like prestige film versus quote a quickie kind of film <laughs> and, and, and films that are just made just because to, f to fill the quotas for distribution. It churned out, um, yeah. Yeah, it just churned out like an assembly line. And she was saying how, you know, oh, I know, like, you know, British films, we just have to put in the work to make them like really spectacular. And I think, and she said, you know, I think my husband is doing that with his Shakespeare films. And I hope that Anna Karenina is going to be a film like that as well. Unfortunately, it, it wasn't. Well, it was in a way that it's very European. Because it was obviously um, Julien de Vivier directed it, and like um, Henri Alacan did I mean, cinematography. I actually since. really like it, but it wasn't a big yeah. success at the it time. It doesn't quite work for me as a film. Um, I think because mostly because she and Kieran Moore, who played Vronsky, have appalling on-screen chemistry. It just I mean, doesn't work he at was all. Just a bad, bad actor in that film, He's especially. So bad. I don't know. Oh, no. I've never seen him in anything else, but in that film, he is pretty terrible. <laughs> um, he's also in a film, a beloved film from my childhood called Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Oh, I've never seen that. Do you remember that, that one? No. <laughs> Oh my god, it's so good. It's it's like one of those live action Disney films from the sixties and it has Sean Connery. <laughs> oh my god. It's good. God. It's class. You have to amazing. watch it. It's so good. Yeah, no, it's good. But there's a lot of people it's about who leprechauns. Have there's a lot of people who've expressed sort of disappointment that Vivian, you know, had she stayed on in Hollywood after Gone with the Wind throughout the forties, she would have probably had like a really illustrious cinematic career, like someone like Betty Davis or Catherine mm. Hepburn, where they sort of had so many amazing roles throughout the 40s, and Vivian kind of missed out on that. Um, do you think that Larry had something to do with the fact that she chose to come back to England, or was it her own decision? How do you see it? Oh, well, I think it was a bit of both. I mean, if she hadn't been with Laurence Olivier, if, he sh if she had just gone to Hollywood... Um, without being attached to somebody, you know, in 1939 to do Gone with the Wind. And if she um, wasn't involved with him, I think maybe she would have stayed mm. in Hollywood. Um, and had a very different career, probably. A very different career, but who's to say that it would have been a Betty Davis kind of career because the 
the films that you read about her being offered during the time, aside from Notorious, the Alfred Hitchcock film, which I think she would have been amazing in. Yeah. Uh, but it was like things like Forever Amber. And oh God, these that again. Like, these that film just these costume out. dramas that were like Gone with the Wind knockoffs, you yeah. know? So I think David Selznick would have milked Gone with the Wind until he couldn't milk it anymore. And maybe the fact that she kind years. of did walk away, maybe the fact that she sort of disappeared at the very height of her career to a certain degree, she that's maybe what made her so legendary. Even at the time, you know, when she went back to do Streetcar a decade later, she was like this legendary figure. The whole of Hollywood kind of came out to see her and Larry because they were such huge legends. And maybe... Oh, as absolutely. Say, I mean, they had gained this like cultural clout back mm. in England that, that sort of moved across the pond back to the States. And, and I mean, they were really revered, not just as like popular actors, but critically as well, especially Laurence Olivier on the stage. Um, but the, the sort of thing is like, because they, they ended up going back to England in 19, early 1941 yeah. um, to take part in the war effort because the UK was at war with Germany at the time before the US entered after Pearl Harbor. So they went back to England. Um, Laurence Olivier wanted to join the RAF, but he was too old, so he joined the Fleet Air Arm. Um, and Vivian went with him because when you're, you know, they were both very patriotic. They both love their home country. Um, and when you're with someone who is like that, that sort of like <laughs> into what they want to do, of course you're, you're probably going to follow them. I mean, she was head, absolutely head over heels in love with Laurence Olivier at the time. Um, yeah. And so I think she would have followed him to the ends of the earth, you oh. know? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, she wasn't going to be like, no, I think I'm going to stay here in Hollywood because she actually hated making movies <laughs> in the 1930s. You know, she would say like, oh, I don't like Hollywood. It's not for me. And she wanted to be on the stage. And that was her ambition from the very beginning. And that ambition matched Laurence Olivier's ambition. So I think they were both on the same page in that way. I don't think he forced her to do anything. Oh, no. I don't think he held her at gunpoint. I don't think he was jealous of, you know, I mean, I'm sure he was jealous of her success in Gone With Him, but I don't think he was jealous to the point where he wanted to take her away or like from that success. Or sabotage her career. No, because I think what they really wanted to do was become this great acting couple, like particularly in the theater. And, and that's what ended up happening. Happening. As, as Vivian had proved before and since, like she, when if she wanted to do something, she just did it. So I think if she wanted to stay in Hollywood, she probably would have, you know. She Vivian wasn't... was no meek wallflower. Exactly. Vivian she knew wasn't what like she a wanted. Weak person. Yeah. She would go after whatever she wanted. And plus, their families were back in the UK as well. Like their kids, they brought their kids over to Canada and LA, respectively, for the duration of the war. But that's where like their their lives were based in England. I don't think they would have moved to Hollywood and forgotten about everything mm. that they'd done or what they wanted to do back home. They were very much rooted in the London scene and, and that's where they wanted to be. And so it's it's very complicated. And I know there are a lot of opinions amongst fans about, oh, well, she should have stayed in Hollywood and she, you know, would have had this like great career. Well, it's not guaranteed that she would have had this great career. No. And I think as you said, um, her coming back to England and then only doing films periodically in the next 20 years um, really, I think, contributes to her 
her iconic status yeah, as you mentioned so, because she's so unique among other you know actresses of the time yes she does she she did some crappy films um some of her films are much better than others but the fact that her output was only 19 movies in a 30-year career um you know she doesn't have a lot of the stinkers in her <laughs> filmography she has two films that really reached iconic status and are considered true classics today that's gone with the wind and a streetcar named desire and yeah, they're staples. those two yeah they're, they're staples of american classic film i mean you can't dismiss her as just being some kind of blip on the radar no. and it's it's amazing to me that she made that sort of impact out of such a small output because a lot of people even if you think like katherine hepburn or elizabeth taylor or even I guess Judy Garland is is the only person I can think of who has a really 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 major iconic role, which was in The Wizard of Oz. But like, if you're not a big Judy Garland fan, you maybe don't know any of the other films that she did, you know? Yeah. And so a lot of people did upwards of like a hundred films during their career, and they didn't have any one single movie that really elevated them to this status just by playing that one role you know mm. so shall we talk a little bit about our favorite Laurence Olivier films because there he's got a very interesting body of work as well yes um, very different to Vigils I think <laughs> yeah definitely I think what's your favorite I don't know I mean this I have to say I haven't seen all of his films but from what I have seen I mean we went to see um, The Marathon Man together, remember? Yes. And I yes. love that film. It's such a good film. And he is so creepy. And so, like, you can really, like, if anyone doubts his sort of talent as a screen actor, they should definitely watch that because he is just so scary. And so it's un so unlike him, I think. He's playing so yeah. out of character. It's very, He's very great good. in that film. Yes, a Dustin Hoffman. Mm-hmm. You'll never want to go to the dentist again after you watch it. <laughs> Is it safe? <laughs> Is it safe? Oh, oh my god! god. <laughs> it's like this typical sort of iconic 70s thriller kind of... Oh yeah, John, um, John Schlesinger. Schlesinger. Yeah. I love those films yeah. from the 70s. And it's just so interesting to see someone like Laurence Olivier who is obviously rooted in this very genteel, very proper sort of English theater of the 30s mm -hmm. and 40s to be able to to play such a part so I think it's it's really good and also um growing up I loved The Prince and the Showgirl which is um mm. based on the Terence Rassingham play in which Vivian actually starred on stage and then Marilyn yeah. Monroe played the, her part on, on screen I think it's another good film which I think a lot of people again criticize Larry for being very sort of wooden and very technical comparing to Marilyn mm -hmm. because Marilyn like Vivian was very very good before the camera she was very natural and I think very Lar natural yeah Larry in contrast is is very stagey but I think it really suits the part because he's playing this ridiculous prince from a you know a, an imaginary country <laughs> yeah with this really weird phony accent but you know I really liked it as a child and I still do I think it's it's great fun yeah I I that's not one of my favorite films, but I think it's interesting that you said that. Because do you remember that movie, My Week with Marilyn, that came out a few years ago? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How Kenneth Branagh wants to be Laurence Olivier. I hate that I'm film. I'm convinced. 
It's a Me horrible too, I film. Like it I think it did a disservice to all concerned, Marilyn, Larry, and Vivian. It was just yeah. a really weird the, caricature. I liked the book that it's based off of um, Colin Clark's book by the same name. Yeah, I've got it as well. And, and The Prince, The Showgirl, and Me. Those are, they're fun books, cute little behind the scenes stories. But the movie I thought was like, it was quite cheesy. Um, yeah, very much. Yeah, I feel like in terms of like Vivian's portrayal, it was really reductive. Oh and yeah, they just, absolutely. It was just some like stereo. Like, let's. She was just this move like on. this <laughs> sad old lady, bitter. Like a frump. Yeah. Like Vivian wasn't frumpy. <laughs> Vivian oh. was completely classy. She wore like Christian Dior gowns. You know, like she was not a matron. No, <laughs> I mean she looked like the queen when she was older because of her hair, but she was very like sprightly, like yeah. her entire life. Very I mean, if tiny. You, sprightly. If you watch something like The Ship of Fools, I mean, oh, she's just incredible. She's so good. She's on fire yes. in that film. She really is. <laughs> oh my god! You know what? Speaking of the this film stuff and how Laurence Olivier was considered like wooden and and very stagey and every as compared to Vivian, who is very natural. I was actually doing some research the other day because I have a collection of photographs of Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. And one of these photographs is from a production of um, Macbeth that was done at the Old Vic in mm. London in 1937. And I was just like, oh, let's Google and find out who did blah, blah, blah. I'll find out about it. And I basically found out that Laurence Olivier and Judith Anderson, who played um, Lady Macbeth in the play, and people might know her as Mrs. Danvers from the film of Rebecca, which yes. also starred Laurence Olivier, the Alfred Hitchcock film, which is amazing. Um, I learned that they actually went up to Alexander Palace in Crouch End yeah. and filmed early TV. They filmed some scenes from Macbeth in 1937 for BBC TV. Oh my God. BBC TV. And in this review, it said like, um, I don't know who saw this or how they got to see it because I'm not quite sure how. But 1937, TV... exactly. There's no TV in 1937. Yeah, but there there was, but it wasn't like in people's houses like it is today, or it was in the 1950s. You know, it was just like it was very just starting out as a technology, and so they filmed certain scenes for for very early TV, which I find fascinating. Um, ah. And someone who reviewed these scenes, I don't know how he got to see it. Um, but basically said that, you know, what they they were so used to acting for the theater and not used at all to this close medium of television, which is in probably some ways more, you know, close up than, than film. Yeah, yeah um, they, so they were very, it's like they were still talking to the back of the gallery when they were <laughs> doing these scenes. And that's a criticism that Laurence Olivier has got, like he got through a lot of, especially his early career but you know people today who watch him think he's just kind of hammy but i think it's like you know acting styles evolve over time so obviously he's not he and robert nero like aren't the same kind of acting style <laughs> no but <laughs> but anyway so yeah i just i found that completely that, fascinating that and i so really want to see that footage i know that like the first ever bbc broadcast was made at Alexandra Palace because there's like a yes, plaque yeah. saying it but I didn't know about this that's really interesting I didn't either until like two days ago and I was just like oh my god it's amazing that's the great thing about yeah. London it's like there's so much history everywhere it's crazy oh yeah it's incredible especially when your favorite people are from there so you can go around <laughs> and see like where they lived and stuff like that um 
One, my favorite Laurence Olivier film by far is Wuthering Heights from 1939 because I just think he's so good as Heathcliff. Yeah. I mean, he's just like embodies that character. I think he's great. And that's the film that I first saw him in that I said like, oh, I get it. You know, like, <laughs> I was been, why did I really like him? Okay, I get it. So I love that one. And then um, I like Rebecca as well. But there's a film, uh, well, two films, actually. One that he made in the 1950s called Carrie. Oh, yeah. Which yes. was, again, for William Wyler. Um, it came out in 1952. And, Jennifer and, and Jones. Jennifer Jones, yeah. It's an adaptation of the Theodore Dreiser novel Sister Carrie. Yeah. And he plays this restaurateur who falls in love with this girl played by Jennifer Jones and kind of gives up like his life for her and you know they ended up they end up like in the poor workhouse and things like that and he has like this like mental and physical decline and he's so understated in that yeah. film like you think about Laurence Olivier over the top very like oh I'm theatrical I'm Laurence Olivier you know but he's so natural and I think understated in this film yeah, you're William right. Miller did a great I job on this. It now it's really good. I liked it a lot when I first saw it. And it was interesting that, that he made it at the same time as Vivian made Streetcar, so they were both working mm-hmm. on those really important films. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a film that is, I think, completely underrated, and a lot of people probably don't know about it. But if you guys can get a hold of it, um, it was made at Paramount, and it's it's such a good performance. It's one of his best. So I love that one. And then I also think he's really, really good in a 1960s film called Term of Trial, where he plays a school teacher um, who's accused of, like, basically molesting a young girl student. And so it's kind of like that film The Hunt, in a way, with Mads Mikkelsen. I don't know if you've mm, seen that. Yeah. But it's, it's a bit like that, where, you know, he's kind of like this persecuted guy but he just plays like a normal like regular guy you know and he doesn't play this these grand characters or these this royalty or any kind of posh person he's just a normal dude and he again a very understated performance a very natural performance and that's one i think everyone needs to watch so Mm, great recommendations i haven't actually seen the 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 last one you should yeah it's good it's got sarah miles in it oh i also remember watching I think it was a TV film where he played opposite Catherine Hepburn. Yes. What was yeah. it? Something Among the Ruins? Or Love something? Among the Ruins. Yeah, that was very good. Directed obviously. by George Cukor. Both yeah. of them are amazing. I love Catherine Hepburn. And also worth noting that she was um, sort of the witness at, at their wedding, wasn't she? Yes, she was. Yeah, she was like the maid of honor. Yeah, which is At so their wedding amazing. in 1940. Yeah, so they were good friends. And Garson Cannon, I think, was the other one, right? Yeah, yeah. They picked him up and said, like, we're going to get married. Do you want to come along? And they said, yeah, okay. So they just like, sat in the back and were like, hi, I'm Catherine Hepburn. Hi, I'm Vivian Lee. Hi, I'm Carissa Kane, basically. It's you so know? crazy. And, like, they it's, became good friends. It's crazy. Catherine Hepburn was such a, like, a close ally to Vivian later on in her life. Yeah, she really was. Yeah, she looked after her when she was in L.A. after the divorce from Larry. Aww, it's, it's really I sweet. I just love Kate. <laughs> we should do an yeah, episode on Kate. Yeah, I know. We should. Um, but do you another want to thing... Dr- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, do you want to address some of those questions we got? Or was there something else you wanted to talk about? Well, 
We had two other things written down. One was about talking about some of the rumors that oh, yes. are like prevalent, and then also a little bit about um, Vivian's experience with mental illness, which I think is something that a lot of people ask about um, mm. and also comes with like preconceived notions about what she was like as a person. So maybe we can just touch on those kind of quickly and then go to some listener questions if you want to Yeah, do that. there's quite a lot of rumors about Lawrence oh Olivier, especially surrounding his <laughs> sexuality. <laughs> yeah, so the big rumor is that Lawrence Olivier was actually gay and his marriage to Vivian was like a sham. Um, <laughs> she was his okay. beard. She was his beard. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning. Okay. <laughs> so, um, how did how did these rumors kind of get out there in the public imagination? Um, it actually happened. I don't know when this book came out. Like the early '90s, just after Larry died. I think it was a book by Donald Spado, the biographer. Um, yeah. And in it. He claims that Laurence Olivier had like a decades long affair with the actor Danny Kay. Yeah. Which to me is just like, give me a fucking break. It's very puzzling because if you look <laughs> like, at Danny Kay, it's quite strange, but you know. Yeah, and I and Laurence Olivier definitely had a type, you know, which is like brunettes. Um, Danny Kay was a redhead, but anyway, they were Danny Kay and Laurence Olivier were friends. Um, Danny Kay would come to stay at Notley Abbey and stuff, um, which is their the Olivier's country home. And so he would come and visit them when he was in the UK performing, like at the London Palladium in the early 1950s, for example. Um, but there's all these sorts of like crazy, like supposed stories that happen. Like this one story about how when Vivian was having this nervous breakdown in Hollywood and Laurence Olivier flew over from Italy to like get her and bring her back to England, this like big, like kind of clusterfuck of a story. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the story that Donald Spotto printed in his book was that Lawrence Olivier was at like LaGuardia Airport or something like that. And he was pulled over for like a, um, you know, like a body pat down by like a TSA agent who ended up being Danny Kaye and that Danny Kaye pulled him into a side room and did like a strip search on him. <laughs> and he's like, surprise, I'm Danny Kaye. And it was like... What? Like, I'm sure even in the 1950s, they must have had some kind of, like, airport, like, <laughs> oversight. She <laughs> couldn't just, like, roll up, like, and strip search someone. Um, so there's that. But basically, the whole thing about... I kind of want to believe that story. It's so amazing. <laughs> it's just so silly. Like, uh, I personally do think that Lawrence Olivier probably was bisexual. Um, I think that he... I would say... I don't know. I don't know this for sure. But I think he probably did at least try it out with a guy mm. at some point. Um, he I definitely could so be too. very camp. Yeah. And obviously he was in the, th the theater, you know, where like a lot of people were gay and are gay. Um, but regardless of any of this, whether it's true or not, and we don't know 100% if it's true or not, it's just rumors. And it's very hard to substantiate rumors that have are rooted in kind of like counterculture or things that people like didn't record, you know, so it would have been just like word of mouth. Yeah. Anyway, regardless of any of this, you guys, Lawrence Olivier and Vivian Lee had a real loving relationship. It was not like some fake sham lavender marriage, okay? He didn't leave her because, you know, she didn't have a nervous breakdown because he was sleeping with Danny Kay. Okay, that's yeah, not and also, what by happened. the way, he married another woman afterwards, so that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and it's like, 
if even if he was sleeping with Danny Kay or even if he was gay, this is something that Vivian being in the same circle of people that Lawrence Louvier moved in would have known from the very beginning, okay? And Vivian was someone who, when she wanted something, regardless of what it was, she went after it. It didn't matter. Like, she was she was going to have... She has set her sights on Lawrence Olivier. She was going to have him. She got him, you know? And they were friends with a lot of people who were in Lavender Marriages. And I mean, one of them was obviously like Michael Redgrave and Rachel Kempson, who were their very good friends. Michael Redgrave was gay. And he, you know, had a long-term male partner who would like come on family vacations with them, <laughs> you know? And then he revealed to his son, like later in life, like, oh, he's like, oh, I, you know, I'm bisexual, you know, to say the very least, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So it's like this, this wasn't like, it wasn't a scenario that would have been like, where Vivian would have found out that he was having some affairs. like, oh, oh my goodness, how dare you? I, did, I didn't know that. I never would have guessed, you know? <laughs> it's like, come on. And I remember when I did my book about Vivian and I did a radio interview on the Frank DeCaro show and, and Frank DeCaro used to be a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart on Comedy Central. Yeah. And now he does his own radio show for, it's like Out, Out FM, I think. That's what it is. I think he still does it, but this was like four years ago. So he asked me, you know, he's like, you know, is it true that, that Lawrence Olivier was gay? And I said, well... You know, I'm not really sure because I could in all my research and I, I've been through Laurence Olivier's papers, you know, and I said I couldn't find anything to substantiate any sort of affair with like Danny Kay or whoever. And I couldn't find anything that like categorically refuted it either. So it's just like still out in the ether. It's just like up in the air, you know. Yeah. And Frank, Frank, who is gay, he said, you know, it's very possible that that he was bisexual and it just didn't matter. And I said, that's an extremely good point because, yeah. <laughs> you know, they did move it in these certain circles where, like, homosexuality definitely was not, like, a secret amongst people. Um, a lot of Vivian's closest friends were gay. She was called a fag hag in her time. <laughs> um, and she was. and And so... I don't think, certainly Laurence Olivier did, did not identify as queer, as gay, as bi. Like he identified as a straight person, I guess, you know, at least in his autobiography. Yeah. But I think even if he was not straight or somewhere else on the spectrum, um, I don't think that people made a big deal of that, you know? Yeah, like and certainly also, like, Vivian didn't. It doesn't mean that. I mean, that just shows the misconception people have about bisexuality. That you know, it doesn't absolutely mean that if you have a sexual relationship with a man, you can't have sexual feelings for a woman. It's crazy. And obviously, from all we know about their relationship, they had an extremely sort of passionate relationship, especially. It was for very passionate. Yeah. So I don't especially think, in the early years, definitely. Yeah. So you can't. You definitely can't say that it was just sort of an arranged thing which would be completely no. well, groundless stupid, because but... Larry was already married to someone else and so was Vivian yeah. so it would just <laughs> it was a very complicated way to go about arranging something you know it just yeah, makes absolutely it's... no sense whatsoever and you know people say too like oh well he didn't really love her because he left her and it's like well oh. um that's not like how 
relationships are not black and white, obviously. Just like life. And tr- yeah, it's just like life. And the only people who really knew the in and out details of that relationship was Vivian Lee and Lawrence Olivier. Like, no matter how much research you do, like, I will never know everything that happened. I will never know how they felt about everything because that's not, the, you know, they didn't record every single thing. They didn't walk around with, like, a dictaphone, you know, in their pocket all day. But we Aww, know from letters, which would have been, like, amazing. <laughs> I know. It would have been so good. But we know from their letters, which are now available at the V&A in London and the British Library, respectively, that they had a very passionate and very deeply involved relationship, not just personally but professionally as well so their lives were very intertwined for a really long time and so I don't think at all that you can say that he didn't love her because he he clearly did and I don't think at all you can say that he didn't care about her and that he left her because you know she got sick and he was just like okay bye bitch you know that's not what happened again that's based on misconceptions of you know what mental illness is and what bipolar disorder is I feel like it's you know people have a very shallow view of both sexuality and mental illness and that's where those kind of very easy statements come from because people just don't know Um, they don't know and it's because they're too like you know quote-unquote taboo kind of subjects and they were very taboo especially in the 1950s but you know now there's still like stigma surrounding certain things um i think we've gotten a lot better at being able to be open about sexuality and about mental illness as well but there's still these like you said a lot of like misconceptions that people have um yeah it's just born out of ignorance really absolutely Um, and i I don't think people really realize what you know living with a person who is bipolar without proper treatment because it wasn't available at the time i don't think people realize Mm -hmm. what that actually means and what it meant Mm -hmm. for larry and what it meant for their relationship it's not as easy as just saying you know she was sick and he left her because it just sounds you know it's it's so much more complicated than that and what it really is what he went through with you know living with vivian is just you know only he again only he could tell us but you know from what we know it was a very very trying very hard time yeah it was traumatic for both of them i'm sure um i know that vivian in her periods of not being manic or depressed was very like you know especially toward the end of their marriage very kind of like um apologetic about it toward him and would say like i know how difficult it's been because again i've read their letters and she said i know how difficult it's been um sometimes even impossible um but the there are two things with Vivian that I think are quite key. The first is that she didn't have the kind of treatment that we have for mood disorders today exactly. back then. So she underwent like um, electroshock therapy in hospital. Um, she took like these really heavy like psychotropic, not psychotropic, um, antipsychotic drugs in the 1960s um, as these kind of um, this knowledge of psychiatry and of, of medicine was evolving. Um, so she went through that, that kind of gamut um, with this treatment, which wasn't always like necessarily effective, you know? No. So it's very like when you when you read about her um, being committed to a mental hospital and having electroshock therapy, you think, my God, like how could anyone force something this barbaric on someone? But I think it's important, however awful it sounds, to remember that that was considered like the best treatment that was available 
for that kind of thing at the time. I mean, it was some people still go through it. Yeah. So um, I think, again, there's a lot of misconceptions. And part of it, I think, comes (laughs) from the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack Nicholson. (laughs) Yeah. It's true because, yeah, that's like, you know, oh, what's it like to be in a mental hospital? I think that's like the picture that people have of this scenario and not to say that it was like all like sunshine and roses when she was in hospital it obviously wasn't but it was what was felt was the best option for her to help her get better at the time so but i don't think she blamed anyone for that you know no but it certainly but, uh, did put a, a massive strain on their relationship and absolutely yeah and i don't think too because there, there's another thing that i wanted to point out is that Like I mentioned, in the 1950s, there was a a lot of stigma surrounding mental illness. I mean, that was like, if anyone found out she um, was like psychotic, then she, her career would have been over, basically. So it was kept very much under wraps, um, kept out of the public eye, as it were. Um, They use covers, they say things like, oh, it's her, the, the TV's back, or, you know, she's, she's just exhausted from the filming and from flying overseas something like that you know and so it was it it was the details weren't made public until after she died when Anne Edwards wrote her biography actually yeah um and so there are a lot of these like misconceptions and it's only when you go back and try and like piece these things together and read through like historical documents and um uh primary sources that you learn like the real situation was actually really complicated and very i can imagine very much of a strain very traumatic for both her and Laurence olivier so personally i don't blame him for leaving her um i think he tried his best with the resources that he had um and i know that he wanted to continue on with his career and felt that he was kind of being held back by this like domestic arena in which he wasn't very happy at the yeah, end. Yeah, and also, um, I mean, it wasn't helping anyone. It wasn't really helping Vivian either. I feel like no, it was such a destructive situation because she would turn against him and it would, like, exhaust her as well, physically mm-hmm. and emotionally, to be around him. Because that's what happens when you're, when you're bipolar. You really turn against the people that you love most. So it was such a destructive situation for the, for the both of them that him staying wouldn't necessarily be a good thing which is something that people again don't like to think about you know that maybe mm-hmm. sometimes leaving might be you know the the more loving the best option. The, yeah exactly like sometimes you have to be kind of cruel to be kind yeah i think and that's what happened in this situation and it it enabled him to you know start a new life with john Plowright, in which he was hopefully happy he had kids and but it also enabled vivian yeah as sad as it was that she lost the love of her life um to take up with an actor called jack Merrivale, who was very patient with her who was very loving and who didn't have the other sort of like outside commitments that Lawrence Olivier did and so he was much more able to fly under the radar with her and allow her to kind of like be the star of the relationship and that was fine and so she I actually think did it was, some some great work afterwards she did for the some last great few, work yeah for the last few years of her life and you know in the end it wasn't her mental health that claimed her life but it was by uh, it was her tb so yeah 
Well, and even Laurence Olivier said in one of those documentaries that, you know, it was really toward the end of her life after they had split up that she really kind of came into her own as an actress because she wasn't being bogged down by being compared to him anymore. You know, she wasn't being sort of forced to fit this mold. She could do her own things on her own terms. And he felt that she was, he said that she was extraordinary in a lot of her performances after. So I think he really appreciated her talent. Um, I know he continued to care about her after they split up. Um, And it's just a, um, a really compelling, long and drawn out story. Their love affair and their relationship and how things turned out. And I think that so many people are still really interested in this grand kind of love affair and, and the ups and downs that it had. It's such a good story. It is. It's a great story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Larry and Viv. <laughs> <laughs> Should we have a look at some of the questions? Yeah. So we... Um, I put it out on Instagram. I run an Instagram called Viv and Larry Graham. Um, and I asked a question on stories, whether anyone wanted to know anything about Larry and Vivian, and we would answer some reader questions on the podcast. So we have a few of them to chat about quickly. So I don't know, Antin, do you want to ask the first one and then we can... Yeah, sure. I mean, the first one it? I can see on here is, did they ever consider having kids? Well, we know that they did, that they really wanted to have children together, but unfortunately due to Vivian's health, they weren't able to she had i don't know how many two at least two at least two yeah miscarriages so it was very tragic and that probably also contributed to kind of their relationship being really strained because Mm -hmm. it must have been a very traumatizing situation but they definitely wanted to have kids together they wanted to have kids together and that that's also um an interesting thing because um they both had a child from their previous marriages Mm. um and i don't think you would call them like great parents to any of their kids because their career definitely came first above anything else and so who's to say like if they had kids they might have just shipped them off to boarding school as they (laughs) did with their other children you know like i don't think that vivian was ever going to be like content being a stay-at-home mom or anything, no. even if it was Larry's child. But I think they wanted to have children together because they loved each other and he wanted to be a family man as well. And that's just, I think they had this sort of ideal in their head of what they wanted their life to be, their marriage to be. And so when Vivian was like unable to have any more children or at least they didn't succeed and have any, um, she yeah, it was very depressing for her. Um, and I think it made her feel like kind of like a failure in a way, like she wasn't living up to his expectations or something like that, you know? I It's it's complicated, but... Yeah, I think so. And especially in those days, it was quite a different kind of social landscape. You really had to have it all for you to be... Cons- like a woman really had to be a mother and a, and a wife. Mm-hmm. Even if she mm-hmm. was a successful actress, if she didn't have the other side, you know, people would look at her like it was the same when we were talking about Ava, you know, people were always asking, like, why mm-hmm. don't you have a family? Why don't you have children? Like, you always felt like a woman had to explain herself. Why, 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 why? It's I think yeah. it's, all, it's a bit like that still in many ways. If you look at someone like Jennifer Aniston, like 
all the time there are articles yeah. and papers like why isn't she is she having a child isn't she having a child like did brad and it's Pitt like she's like 50 like get did, over it maybe she just doesn't want to have kids did brad <laughs> that's Pitt, okay did brad Pitt live leave her because she couldn't have children? it's like really cruel things that people say about yeah. and it's mainly about women like people don't really ask like when is i don't know some of the male stars when are they gonna have a child like when is Leonardo DiCaprio gonna be a father like no one gives a shit but when it's women exactly when is Leonardo DiCaprio gonna be a father but you're never gonna see an article like that no one's gonna write an article like that yeah exactly it's like Leonardo DiCaprio is 45 years old which he probably is which makes me feel extremely old he's Um, not that old come on he is he's gotta be like 44 he's gotta be mid 40s now no. I remember the Titanic days and how beautiful he was in his youth. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no one's going to be like, when is Leonardo DiCaprio getting married? When is he going to stop dating models that are like 18? You know? Yeah, but no one's going to ask those questions Silly. because he's a man. No, no one's going to. <laughs> exactly. But poor Ugh. Jennifer Aniston, she still has to get pregnant. Otherwise... <laughs> otherwise, she's a failure as a woman. Oh my God, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the answer is they did consider having kids. Unfortunately, they were unsuccessful in doing so. Yes. Which is sad. I don't Next think the world question. was ready for a child of theirs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so the next question is from a user called Marlena Dietrich.h. Oh, wow. Hi, Marlena. Said, I thought you were dead. Hi, Marlena. <laughs> and they said. Who were their couple friends? Noel Coward and Graham Payne are the only couple I can think of. Well, oh my god, well that's a very uh, good question. Some other people would be like uh, Rachel Kempson and Michael Redgrave were very close friends with them. Kate Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Lauren Bacall and Bogey Humphrey Bogart. And Bacall. Yeah. Bogey and Bacall. Uh, who else hung out with them on a regular basis? Like a lot of theater friends. Yeah. David Niven and uh, Yordis. Niven, Hjordis, that's how you pronounce it, Yordis, I don't know. Um, who Sorry. else? Um. <laughs> and, and that lady. <laughs> I just love when you try to Jordis. get it out. Yordis, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Swedish lady. It's so it's interesting because like there were especially Vivian, she was such a gifted friend. She like really mm-hmm. loved her friends and she corresponded with like hundreds of people and maintained mm-hmm. close relationships with them, which is really incredible. She was really yes, she did. a great friend to so many people. She was very dedicated. Mm. And like and we mentioned people before, were like dedicated people... in return. Exactly. Oh, like I mentioned... can think of some other couples. Go ahead. Um like Robert Hauptman and Michael Benthal. Yeah. Um, Ivor Novello and Bobby Andrews. They were good friends as well. Um, all the gays. All the gays. Like she, Vivian, like me, loved the gays. Like had to have her drag race all the time. <laughs> had to have had to have her gay friends around. And yeah, no, I I know where well, she's. It's a, it's a mutual love. It's a mutual love. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I feel like Vivian is definitely, like, a very understated gay icon, but she is. Like, she... Mm. I, I know lots of gay guys who love her. She was definitely LGBT-friendly in her time as well. 
Yeah, I mean, she was friends with Noel Coward, who was like this biggest mincing queen there was. The, big, the biggest queen there ever lived. I think so. He was like <laughs> not as big, not as big of a queen as Robert Heltman, though, who's like her best friend. Yeah, both of them like those bitchy, really flamboyant queens, and she loved them so. So bitchy. <laughs> but Vivian was, especially later in her life, she was like, like so, like camp in her demeanor. <laughs> Like with her, she learned from the best. Like with her little cigarette and with her like very like smoky voice and her like bitchy yes. one liners. She was like amazing. <laughs> she was she was so amazing. <laughs> this is Vivian Lee in London. <laughs> this is uh Ken Ken Tynan in New York. <laughs> but Ken I think that <laughs> movies have a point of view, whether they set out to or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what a star is, except I think that it's someone who... <laughs> someone who... Well, you don't quite know what they're doing, but it, you always find it interesting. I think Marlene Dietrich had it, and I certainly think Brigitte Bardo had it. <laughs> <laughs> Viv is an icon. Garbo certainly had it. <laughs> My cat's meowing at me. Oh, She's here. probably saying we should wrap up. <laughs> She's like, hurry up and give me some dreamies. Come here. Should Bye. we do one? Should we do one last question before we go? Uh, yes. What's the most interesting one? <laughs> Sorry, guys. We're gonna rate you now. Yeah, we're gonna rate you. Oh, I like this one actually. Which one? Um, what did Larry think about Vivian as an actress? Oh yes. By someone called Charmed Hour Seventy Seven. Yes. Great Hello, name. Charmed Hour Seventy Seven. <laughs> Thank you for writing in to the show. So what do you think Larry thought of Vivian as, a, as an actress? I think oh, I think he thought that she worked extremely hard to get where she was. Um, and I think he resented being told by critics and by their friends in the theatrical community that uh, she was um, that he was lowering his own talents mm. to boost hers up. I think he really resented that. Um, he spoke. He spoke very highly of her, not just after their divorce, but during their marriage. And he would always say, you know, anything that she accomplished, she's done on her own. And he said that about Scarlett O'Hara. He said that about her theatrical um, accomplishments. So I think he had a lot of respect for her. He knew that um, he respected that she put in the work. She worked extremely hard to be more than just a pretty face during her career. And then afterward, like he said. I I have a letter somewhere on my phone, which isn't up here in my office, but basically it's when Tovarich came out and he said, like, I've heard from so many people that you were such a great success. You're such a clever girl. I'm so proud of you. Like, I, he continued Aww. to follow her, her career, even when they weren't together anymore. And I think he, you know, he kind of looked out for her from afar, I guess you could say. Like, he would offer advice, she'd still come to him for advice, she'd call him, she'd write him, they would talk about their work, and he yeah. would say what he was doing, and, and you know, because they still had so many contacts in common, and they both existed in the same sort of sphere. And um, they really so grew up together very much, at the very together, same yes. time. Like, they came out 
from the same tradition and they went to Hollywood at the same time really and mm -hmm. they became major stars at the very same time which is crazy to think but and Gone all with of the their wind. big all of their major successes I think as actors um came during the period when they were together like they both yeah. won Oscars when they were married uh they won all sorts of like theater awards they were really he was knighted. in that way he was knighted yeah exactly like you know they started planning the national theater when they were still together and so even though that happened after Aww. they divorced like she was very much a part, part of those of discussions yeah. and that process and so I think he had a lot of respect for her. Um, I know he really, really, really loved her as Lady Macbeth when they yes. did Macbeth in 1955. And then afterward in the 1960s when people would ask him, like, oh, you know, can you recommend someone for this role? And he said, if you want the best Lady Macbeth, you'll ask Vivian because she was the best one in his opinion. Oh, I can hear your and cat. <laughs> I know. Lula, Hi, be Lula. quiet. Quiet. She's got ants in her pants. She gives me this like crazy <laughs> look. And she's like, I'm gonna run around. <laughs> Quiet, we're almost done. We're almost done. Um, so yeah, I think he, he held her in really high esteem as an actress. Damn I don't think that's straight. disputable. Yeah, I mean, he, he could see up close and personal what she was capable of as well. So yes. he directed her in Streetcar on stage mm -hmm. again. So he must have really seen all that fire that was like inside her i think he must have yeah. really admired that i think so yeah oh, oh they were they're so interesting we should probably wrap it up but i mean we could definitely talk about this like all day i know so, if you want to follow up let us know because yeah send us more questions it. and we can always answer <laughs> more <them>. questions <laughs> Oh, thank okay. you so much, Kendra. It's been lovely chatting to you about a yes, subject which is well. so dear to your heart. Oh, yeah, it was really fun. Oh. And next time, I think we're going to be speaking about a scandalous book and documentary um, that is coming out soon. And we're going to have a guest person. Yes, very our... exciting. Very excited. So I'm going to finish reading that book and then I'm going to try and find the movie so I can watch it. Yeah, same. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Kendra. Okay. Bye. Bye.